In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And today we have a very Biden-heavy episode, <laughs> I realized, as I was going over the topics and doing research. like uh, Pretty much all of our segments are at least in some way related to the Biden administration. Um, but that kind of makes sense. He's the president. Yeah. <laughs> and that's well, just like how you refer to the government run by the president. You know, like, you know. It's really all the sub-departments that we're really talking about, but it's yeah. the Biden administration. Well, I think you forget how Trump-centric all of our other episodes <laughs> were. No, like, that's so true. I mean, I guess the fact that less of our episodes have been centered on the president probably means that he's doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I would hope so. But uh, I don't know if you'll get that impression from, from this episode necessarily. So we'll start <laughs> off by talking about um, a bit more about immigration um, and uh, the issues that are happening at the border and some of the updates there. And then we'll provide um, a discussion of Biden's recent ban on travel from India. And finally, we will um, have a discussion that's uh, a little bit more conceptual about um, Biden's ban on menthol cigarettes. Or I should say FDA's ban on uh, menthol cigarettes. Yeah. But first... If you like the show, if you love the show, if you want to support us, uh, if you want to keep you know, making sure this show keeps happening, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thepperspectrum and throw us a couple bucks. You'll get access to some, some dope exclusive patron content. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talk a little bit at the end hmm. of every single podcast, and we have interesting conversations because we're interesting people. Uh, and yeah. you will get access to that if you become a patron. So uh, you should definitely do that. Uh, if if you yeah. are unable to do that, you know, no big whoop. We still love to have you listening. But if you can do that, if you're able to do that, you get some benefits. Yeah. And if you think the gloves are off during our normal show, just <laughs> listen to our uh, the Patreon uh, after hours videos. Oh, and it's also you get to see our faces. It's also on video. True. So you watch it. True. So you get to. So if you've. <clears throat> Like if you heard about us through a friend of a friend or whatever, and you've never hmm. seen a picture of, uh, of us, you have no idea what we look like. Um, you can see that we're actually kind of attractive. Well, we I mean, you can certainly see the top half of our faces above <laughs> our microphones. <laughs> yeah. 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 We don't just have sexy voices. No, no, we don't. <laughs> Although we also have those. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about something that's not sexy. Uh, let's talk mm -hmm. about the COVID numbers. Wow unsexiest topic mm. uh, absolutely so worldwide at this point 156 million people have gotten covid which is up from 150 million last week um so almost almost a million new cases a day um and that's nearly a four percent increase in total cases which is a which is a higher increase than we saw the previous week um these new cases are largely driven by cases out of india um where two days ago um and this has been a consistent thing, they experienced four times the number of new cases of the next highest country, which is just crazy. Um, 
At, at this point in the world, 3.25 million people have died from COVID, which is up from 3.16 million last week, which is about a 2.8% increase in total deaths. Um, and that's a higher increase, again, than we saw over the previous week. Um, and at this point, there have been uh, 16 doses administered worldwide for every 100 people, which is up from uh, 14 doses per 100 people last week, which is about the same growth um, that we saw uh, compared to the prior week. In the U.S., at this point, 33.3 million people have gotten COVID, um, which is up from 32.9 million last week. So that's actually a 1.2% increase, uh, which is a bit higher than we saw last week. So last week, um, it was a 0.9% increase. This week is a 1.2% increase. And so that's about 400,000 new cases um, this week in the U.S. Um, so far, 593,000 people have died in the U.S. from COVID, which is up from 588,000 last week which is about a 0.8% increase or about 715 new deaths per day. So again, um, that metric is, you know, is higher than the previous week when it was about, you know, 500 something deaths per day. Um, in the U S at this point, one dose of the vaccine has been administered to 45% of the population, which is up from 43% of the population last week, which is an increase of just two percentage points week over week, which is terrible. Um, <laughs> for, for the last, for the few weeks before that, we were seeing an increase of like 4% per week. Um, and now it's just 2%. Um, on the bright side, 32% of the U.S. is fully vaccinated, which is up from 28% last week. So that's still seeing that four percentage point increase. Um, but yeah, still like lingering worry that fewer and fewer people that we've like already vaccinated all the people that are, have been convinced to be vaccinated or yeah. we're getting close to that and that we're going to start seeing fewer and people show up to these vaccination sites. Yeah. And that's super concerning. There's already been some experts that have said that it's possible that herd immunity is not going to be achievable in the United States because of vaccine hesitancy. And uh, John Oliver actually uh, recently did a segment in which he brought up a really important point that I think needs to be, needs to be repeated, which is the fact that we can come on here and talk about the facts of COVID like celebrities can take the COVID vaccine. Famous politicians can take the COVID vaccine. They can encourage people to take it. But the thing that actually ends up convincing people that might have been hesitant previously is not seeing a bunch of people or hearing a bunch of people talk about it that they, that they don't know. It's hearing about it from people that they do know hearing about it yeah. from their family members, their friends. So I think it's important to note that when Michael and I talk about the numbers with regard to the COVID vaccine, when we talk about the facts and the studies, we're not necessarily targeting anti-vaxxers with that. We're targeting mm -hmm. people that might be friends with anti-vaxxers or family with anti-vaxxers yeah. or, 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 you know, maybe not even anti-vaxxers, but people that are specifically concerned about this particular vaccine. Yeah. Which is even more common than which just is, being which is even more common. worried about so, vaccines. So I guess, I guess I shouldn't use the blanket term anti-vaxxer for this, but what's, what's important to note is that what is going to be a lot more effective and something that you can really have a practical impact on is if you have a family member 
or a friend who is hesitant, talk to them. You know, Mm -hmm. don't be too judgmental because that's how you get people to shut down. But talk to them, listen to their concerns, and try to alleviate those concerns based on your own knowledge. And also use emotional appeals. You know, talk about how concerned that you might be for their own personal safety. That is actually a lot more effective than, you know, two idiots like Michael and I talking about how great the vaccine is. Yeah. And and don't use... Don't use the approach that I have accidentally used, which is, you know, people people bring up like, oh, well, you know, like people have died. And it's like two people yeah. of like millions. Of, and, and my response is like, really? You like you're worried about that. You're yeah. more likely to die like right now in your home getting struck by lightning or something like that. It's <laughs> like you just don't have to be worried about that. Don't yeah. take that approach. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's and that's the thing. Like I. I'm not always in the best position to be the one that convinces anti-vaxxers because I have such strong feelings. Um, Part of it comes from the fact that I'm autistic and I get really worked up when people say something like, hey, I'm worried about taking this uh, this measles vaccine because I don't want my kid to be autistic. And to me, Mm -hmm. basically what you're saying is I'd rather my kid have the measles than be like you. And that really works me up, which unfortunately makes me a lot less persuasive. Um, Yeah. So... So, you know, I, I, I will admit that I sometimes don't take the most effective path when it comes to persuading people about uh, against, um, you know, anti-vaccine sentiment. Um, but it is something that we all do have to try to take initiative for the people that we care about, because the way that we protect them, the way that we help them protect other people is by having those tough conversations. And that's yeah. that's going to be really important. Yeah. And if you know people that are worried about the impact of COVID, if you know people that are like still taking precautions that, you know, they wouldn't have to take after they get the vaccine, like there are some really good, you know, ways to convince people right there. Like Montgomery County, which is right across the border from where I live and, and where my wife uh, Bree covers, they're, what they've told everybody is like, we're, we're really anxious to open up the economy. We'll do it as soon as enough of you take the vaccine. So yeah. go ahead and tell your friends and family to take the vaccine so we can get life back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're tired of the shit we've gone through over the last year, <laughs> that's, that's the solution. That's the solution. Right there. <laughs> and if you're not tired of it, you can still just hide in your house later <laughs> after you get the vaccine. Yeah. 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 And what's, what's kind of funny is uh, related to the vaccine there was something that I was planning on coming on the pod and basically screaming at Biden about, <laughs> um, which is the fact that um, there was uh, a there was a patent on there's a patent protection for COVID vaccines that mm-hmm. a bunch of pharmaceutical companies were basically like, oh well, we can't lift these patents because then. China or Russia could get the intellectual property and they could expand upon it and potentially cure other things. <laughs> Which, of course, to them is a bad thing because they can't profit off of it. But they're so wrapped up in their own greed that they don't realize how fucking stupid that sounds. And I was planning on coming on here and just being like, man, Biden is such a corrupt piece of shit for not lifting this patent, for, for not doing a, a waiver of the patent protections. And then literally hours before we started recording, 
he announced support for a waiver of the patent protections. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Matt, credit to the Biden administration. Yeah. Good on you, Biden. <laughs> good on you, bro. <laughs> nice. That's always good, good on to hear. you. So yeah, that that's super important because it means that uh, that companies in other countries can create generic versions of the vaccine using the same intellectual property that was used in order to develop the the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, uh, which means that more of the world ends up getting vaccinated. And that is a good thing. Yeah. Unmitigatingly a good thing. Yeah. Potentially in our, in our first segment here, we've got some potential other good news coming out of the Biden administration. So yeah. A few weeks ago, we did a segment on immigration problems under the Biden administration. Um, this was about five weeks ago. It was an episode called There Has to Be a Solution. And so if yep. you're interested in kind of the details there, you can go listen to that. Um, but the things we we're really worried about were um, the like low number of so like the surge of, of migrants coming to the southern border who are not being taken care of, uh, the high number of unaccompanied minors who were being accepted and basically kept in, um, you know, like cages, very similar yeah. to the ones that, that we criticized Trump um, for, for using. Um, and so there has been some progress on these fronts that we yeah. wanted to talk about today. Yeah. So a little bit of background on that, a little bit of extra background. So basically what was happening was that the Biden administration, due to COVID, had made a blanket rule that uh, individuals as well as families would not be allowed to be admitted to the United States. However, unaccompanied minors could be admitted to the United States, which unfortunately had the, you know, most likely unintended consequence of families sending their, uh, sending minors unaccompanied across the border with the hope that they would then be processed by the United States. And the issue is, while they were being processed, they were being kept in basically the same detention facilities as, as Michael pointed out, that they were that kids were being held in during the, the, the Trump administration. So this was creating a huge issue. And there were about 5,000 minors stuck in those facilities uh, you know, as, as a result of this policy. So as of March, that number is now 600. Yeah. Yeah. That's in the last five weeks, the number of kids held by customs and border patrol has fallen by 88%. Yeah. And just to like iterate, like the conditions in these facilities were really terrible. Like, so first of all, kids were being held for like, a week or more, whereas legally Customs and Border Patrol is only allowed to hold them for three days because that's not what they're for. That's not what Customs and Border Patrol does. Yeah. Like these kids should be put into, uh, you know, processed, handed basically over to um, Health and Human Services where they can actually be cared for. Um, So they weren't receiving sufficient food. They weren't receiving like proper hygiene or being able to take showers. The, the overcrowding was so bad that kids were taking turns sleeping on the floor. Yeah. One facility, which, you know, they had, they set up, you know, the Biden administration in an attempt to handle the increased volume, set up over a dozen temporary facilities. One of these facilities, which was basically just a big tent designed to hold 250 people, was detaining 1,800 kids. Yeah. 
So, so it just completely untenable situation. And it's, yeah, it's dropped significantly since then. And now kids are being held for around 20 hours rather than, than seven or more days. Yeah. And I, and I think that the Biden administration does deserve some criticism for what they had done. And I think that it, it definitely makes sense to say it's a good thing that we went from 5,000 to 600. However, that 600 number only sounds good when compared to the 5,000 number. Yes. Like if, if that were taken, if that were out of context and you just told me that right Mm -hmm. now there were 600 minors being held in these detention facilities, I would say that's a fucking travesty. Yeah. You know, and now the thing is like, like it does take time to process these things. Like it, it takes time to like receive the kids, document them, like, like go through the proper steps to get absolutely, them but you don't accepted, to... you know, properly. Absolutely. But we got to do better than just than putting kids yeah. in cages and putting yeah. kids in overcrowded tents. Like I, I, yeah. I understand there needs to be a process of, you know, of, uh, of screening and processing these kids and, you know, figuring out what's best for them. But in the meantime, God, there's gotta be something better than this. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. I like, there were some photos that came out of one of these facilities and one of the photos, it was like, it was kind of a before and after. And one of the photos, like, you know, it was kids sleeping on these thin pads wall to wall in this, like uh, on this floor in this random room and like it was obviously overcrowded it was obviously uncomfortable there was no way it was sustainable the after photo was like fewer kids yeah sleeping on these thin pads in this random room on the and, ground and you, you know, know like I'm, you know what i'm wondering like where do these pads come from like who produces <laughs> these pads i mean if you if you have the resources like if you if you are going to distribute um something that helps people sleep better like why not just dish out and get cots mm-hmm. i mean it almost feels like you're adding insult to injury to be like okay here's our bedding accommodations a random ass fucking pad yeah like who's who's creating these pads like is there a company somewhere <laughs> that's like I mean, hey, yeah you know like... we're gonna mass produce a bunch of pads so that uh, unaccompanied what? Uh, unaccompanied brown kids can have a place to sleep. They like, look that's like ridiculous. the same pads that I've seen in some like homeless shelters. Like, yeah, they're like an inch and a half thick, uh, sterilizable rubber pads. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It's just it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. and and I guess so. The the Biden administration has been arguing that they still need to have their halt on families. And, uh, you know, and, and individuals entering because of, uh, you know, preventing the spread of COVID. And to an extent, I sympathize with that. But at the same time, number one, the United States actually has more cases than most of the per capita than most of these countries that these uh, that these people are coming from had. Number two, I'm. Why can't you just do like a, a testing process? Like maybe um, a person has yeah. to submit to a, a test. And we've then got like... so many extra tests in this country right now. And number like... <laughs> three, we've actually reached the point in COVID vaccines where they're uh, where 
supply has outstripped demand. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you have a bunch of extra vaccines just lying around somewhere, fuck it, start vaccinating people. Like people come, you know, if people are coming in or people are wanting to come in, like just, just vaccinate them. I know that Republicans are going to be like, oh, well, this is going to make more people want to come here. Well, I mean, f- first off, the fact that those vaccines are not already readily available in the other countries. Yeah, in countries that desperately like, need them. Like that right there is the criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, and number two, vaccinating everybody is a public good, no matter what country they're from. Yeah. Because air travel exists. Yeah. You know, <laughs> a, a person in in China with COVID can potentially affect the entire world as we have seen mm-hmm. from this entire pandemic. So <laughs> we have a vested interest in making sure that the whole world gets this, gets uh, access to vaccines. So again, if you want to solve that problem, make sure that these, the countries that these people are coming from have access to those vaccines in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Another, like another immigration update from the Biden administration that, you know, at first, it's like, yeah, what a win. And then you look a little closer and it's like, well, this is like half. It's like half a thing <laughs> is is his update or increase of the cap on refugees um, settling in the United States. Yeah. So so back in February, he signed a bunch of executive orders on immigration. But one thing he didn't do and recently came out and said he wasn't going to change was the 15,000 person like refugee cap. Um, that Trump had in place last year. Yeah. 15,000 refugees is embarrassingly low. Yeah. Like, and and Trump said he was going to temporary, temporarily leave it in place, you know, while they kind of figure something else out. But, you know, in the face of like a surge of asylum seekers trying like coming to the United States, like in the face of like people needing like no fewer people and probably more people worldwide needing to come to the United States as refugees. Like there's, there's no reason to have this ridiculously low cap. And to put it in perspective, it's literally the lowest it's been in decades since 2000, the cap has hovered between 70 and 80,000. So like five times this rate that he was just going to like leave in place. Cause like who cares? Yeah. Um, so in, in the Biden administration's defense, though, and th- this was the argument that they gave. And again, you, you rarely hear me use the sentence in the Biden administration's defense. So savor this while you can. Um, their counter argument was basically, well, all right, we left it in place because we hadn't left. We, we hadn't reached the 15,000 cap yet. And we were going to revisit it when we were getting closer to that. Now, at first glance, you might hear that and you think, that sounds like an excuse. But actually, interestingly enough, um, at this point, the Biden administration has resettled roughly 2,360 refugees, which mm-hmm. is significantly lower than even that 15,000 cap. Yep. So I think that an argument could actually be made that his initial decision was not based on this is where I want to keep the cap at. It was just the fact that they hadn't gotten anywhere near that. So there was no point in revisiting it. And the fact that he came out and said, Oh, well, we're going to increase the cap 
um, to sixteen uh, to to, to sixty two thousand five hundred was more because of political pressure and less about anything to do with anything practical. Now that being said, I think that this does emphasize a few things. Number one. When your cap for refugees is super low, it might send a message to potential refugees that we're not welcoming, that we're not trying that we're not trying to be welcoming to you. And increasing that cap the way he did could send, you know, a message not just to refugees, but also to the rest of the world that we are where you want to be. We are a welcoming place. And we are going to we are going to be that bastion of liberty that we claim to be. So I don't know. I think that the politics of it is a little bit more complicated than just like, you know, he was he was being a douchebag and a bunch of progressives started screaming at him and he decided to no longer be a douchebag anymore. Usually, like when I first glanced at the story, that's what I thought. Like my first reaction was, oh, well, he had the wrong position and they bullied him into the right position. But I think that when you look at the numbers, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I'd say it is a little bit more complicated. The one thing I would push back on as like a mitigating factor is, so first of all, as we know with all of this immigration stuff, Biden received a total shit show. Like yeah. there's a reason why the wheels came off the bus as soon as he stepped on. Yeah. Like <laughs> um, he just received a total like shit show. And so, so it's astounding to me that number that you referenced, Nathan, the 2,360 refugees settled in three and a half months of the Biden administration. Yeah. And partially that's because the resources of the group that actually settles those people were decimated when the cap was lowered. Yeah. So, so it seems like, it seems like there, maybe there's a like bit of a chicken and egg problem. Yeah. But like, let's, get the right resources in place. And if that and if that is related to the cap, which I think it is, let's like if that yeah. you know, let's get the right cap. Also, let's just have the cap where we think it should be so yeah. that if things change, if we do if we do get staffed up, if we are able to process these people, you know, we're not you know, we're not caught um on our back foot. So I think there's like there's a few ways to look at it all of which kind of point to it's pretty much a no regrets thing to raise yeah. the cap. Yeah. And, and it just looks terrible to be like, no, let's just leave it right where the xenophobic guy thought it was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, to, to be, to be clear, I'm not in any way saying that this is not a, a good thing. Like, I think that this was the right call. And I think that um, Biden did show good instincts in changing this. And hopefully this w yeah. does mean that there will be greater resources allocated towards resettling refugees so that we can increase that number. Um, as it stands, I, it's it's, it's kind of hilarious what the, the Republican reaction has been on this. Oh, no. So uh, <laughs> one of our uh, one of our favorite fascists, um, uh, Senator Tom Cotton, who is a, a mm. regular on the show. Uh, of ass hattery. Uh, he, he said, quote, increasing the refugee admissions cap will put American jobs and safety at risk. Jesus the Biden Christ. administration should be focused on getting Americans back to work again, jobs and safety again. You okay. Dickhole. So, oh my God. So studies show first off, 
um, that immigrants work jobs that employers struggle to fill. Yes. That's just that's just what happens. Which employers are currently do, like doing yeah. struggling Which to employers fill are struggling to fill. Um, and number two, uh, on the, the safety thing, and we've talked about this on the pod before, documented immigrants are the safest people like in terms of crime rates. So if mm -hmm. we're comparing them to naturalized citizens, if we're comparing them to undocumented immigrants, like they have the lowest crime rates of any of those two groups. And in fact, undocumented immigrants actually have lower crime rates than natural than than natural born citizens. Hmm. I, I think I said naturalized citizens. I meant to say natural born citizens. So the security thing and the jobs thing is just comically bullshit. Yeah. And the fact that that same Republican talking point is what they're going back to really does demonstrate that they have nothing. They, they have, have nothing. absolutely nothing. Also, like, even 62,500 is low. It's so yeah. low. Yeah. I mean like, the argument that the argument that Tucker Carlson keeps trying to make is that well Democrats they want more immigration so they can come in and replace all of the regular Americans and get Democrats elected. And it's oh like you're God. you're not going to electorally electorally <laughs> like uh, a little over 60,000 refugees that that is not going to <laughs> Well, they're going to settle them all in Georgia. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> like, that is not going to make much of a difference. And also, if you're worried that refugees aren't going to vote for Republicans, maybe you could stop treating them like shit. Maybe if you didn't treat them like shit, they might consider voting for Republicans. You ever thought about that? Yeah, they're just playing the really long game. Like, it's going to take 100 years for us to get enough refugees <laughs> settled in order to, to swing yeah. the voting outcome. Yeah, no, Tucker yeah. Carlson, like, literally went straight up replacement theory. To be fair, recently. well, I mean, well, that's that's all. Like, I feel like I feel like that's like cultural replacement is the thing, the line they've been pushing for a long time. Yeah. Like, um but yeah, yeah, it exactly. doesn't surprise me that he's not that good at math, though, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, he, he apparently doesn't know how to use Google. So, yeah. You know, as we, so day. anyway, congratulations to Tucker Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Cotton. <laughs> and Tom Cotton. Yeah. Anyway, so like the thing is, we're jubilant on this show to yeah. have Democrats in charge. We, yeah. We just want them to like deliver on the stuff that we know that they know that they should. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, we do Tips for Good every week because you give me that hummingbird heartbeat, spread mm. my wings to make me fly. The taste of your honey is so sweet. When you give really me that hummingbird heartbeat. <laughs> it really took a left turn at the end there. I don't want you tasting my honey. <laughs> but it's so sweet. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's good. That's a good reason to do to. But good. you know what else is really sweet? What? Making the world a better place. Oh, heck yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? 
Well, our tip for good this week is um, kind of related to one we did a while ago. So we did a while ago, we provided an update that came out of the CDC on what fully vaccinated people could do. And the CDC has updated that uh, list of things. And so we wanted to pass that along uh, to you guys. So um, one of the big things that is like a lot of people, um, I think, are breathing a sigh of unmasked relief about is that now fully vaccinated people no like are no longer recommended to need to wear masks outdoors, except in the, if they're like in like really crowded um, areas. So like, like now you can just go outside, breathe fresh air, take a walk, take a run, like all these things and like no need to wear a mask, no need to feel guilty about it, nothing. It's awesome. They also have clarified that, you know, people who are fully vaccinated and have a known exposure, um, as long as they're asymptomatic, like they can go to work, they don't have to quarantine, um, they can congregate with other people. So like now, like we're getting to this place where you really are like the CDC is advising us that we really are safe to just kind of pretty much go about our normal lives in a significant way. Now, they still think that like, you know, if you are going to be, you know, inside with large groups of people or things like that. If you're fully vaccinated, go ahead and wear a mask. Yeah. Um, but things like dining outdoors at a restaurant, things like a smet- a- attending outdoor gatherings um, with fully vaccinated and unvaccinated people, no mask, attending, um, you know, gatherings inside with vaccinated people, no mask required. It's like yeah, super freeing. So yep. know that, you know, once you're fully vaccinated, uh, you're in pretty much good shape. Yeah. And that's tips for good. So our second Biden-centric <laughs> um, segment of the show is focused on a announcement that his administration put out on Friday Um that they would be placing a ban on most non-U.S. citizens entering the United States from India. Now, this is uh, this took effect on Tuesday, uh, May fourth, um, and basically, the, and so this was a recommendation actually from the CDC because of the enormous growth in cases and kind of the new variant that is is ravaging India right now, um, and. Uh, it's it's actually not the first time Biden has did this, which I, I didn't know until I started to look into this. So in January, he issued similar bans on most entrant entrances from non-U.S. citizens um, from South Africa, um, as well as um, continuing bans from Brazil, United Kingdom, Ireland, and actually 26 other countries in Europe. So at this point, like, in, in, as well as actually China and Iran as well. So at this point, we've got like, pretty much non-U.S. citizens are not allowed to come from most countries into the U.S. at this point. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, in terms of the India ban, we're not the only ones that have, that have done a travel ban. Uh, No. Like, I'm not going to read this entire list, but it's a long one. Uh, I Mm -hmm. mean, Canada, U.K., Germany, uh, Belgium, um, Hong Kong, Thailand, Italy, like there, there's a ton of countries on this list. 
So one of the one of the reasons why we wanted to do this segment initially was because there was a lot of there were a lot of people that were critical of Trump's ban on China uh, on on travel to China early in the pandemic. Now there are a lot of Democrats who are like, "Oh, well, he is being xenophobic," and I I don't think that you or I took a stance on whether or not that was the right move. Yeah, I I I, I, I straight up just, I don't remember if like what our what our stance was if we if we took a stance. Um, I what I had a problem with was the fact that he kept pointing to that and saying, "Look, I did such a good job. Yeah. Okay, it would have been so much worse." Yeah. And the thing is, at the time, most of the like most of the cases that were cropping up in the United States were primarily coming from Europe rather than from mm-hmm. China. So it really didn't do that much. Yeah. It might have been the right move, but it didn't end up doing that much. And it probably was. I, I don't think that Democrats referring to it as xenophobic were necessarily doing themselves any favors. Yeah, uh, I think that. If you want to call Trump xenophobic, there's a thousand things that you can point to 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 mm-hmm. to you know to say like yeah this this guy is xenophobic. I don't think that was one of them personally. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some I've seen some reporting about like you know uh, kind of like question journalism like oh is Biden a hypocrite because he's banning things from like pe- banning travel from India, and the thing is like Trump claimed that Biden called him xenophobic for banning travel from China, but he actually didn't do that. Yeah, now Pelosi he did, did, I think, but but mm. I don't think Biden ever did. Yeah, yeah, it, well, Biden didn't, and he did. Okay. Cri- he did call his leadership xenophobic. He called his leadership on coronavirus weak, um, but he but he, it wasn't specifically about like yeah. the ban from China, um, and that's a big thing here. Like, yes, Trump is a xenophobe. Yes, he called it the Chinese virus and the Wuhan flu and all of this crap. Which contributed that, to hate crimes against Asians. Exactly. That has led literally Americans to be less safe, even apart from the deadly pandemic that he, he let rage throughout the United States. Yeah. So, so if like, you want to call him xenophobic because of that, you are absolutely right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and I, to Nathan's point also, like, the real criticism here, aside from his general xenophobia, is his incredibly, the fact that a potentially useless ban on travel from China was the big accomplishment that he claimed like that he did. And the fact that like even a liar as a liar, that was the the best that he could do Um, because his, his handling of the coronavirus was so weak. So like that, I think is the big criticism. I do want to, I do want to say that like, I think you could connect his ban uh, on travel from China to his xenophobia because like this was the ban that he talked about. And so like this, he, he instituted this at like the end of January, 2020. Um, and just, and, and, and he instituted this at a time when, as Nathan mentioned, most of our new cases that were imported to the United States were, um, coming from Europe but to underscore his xenophobia, just a couple months later, he enacted similar bans on travel from Europe, but he never talked about it. It was yeah. never one of his talking points. And that's because the big narrative he was pushing about COVID was the xenophobic one, was yeah. calling it the Chinese virus, the Wuhan flu, things like that, in order to attempt to use racism to scapegoat China 
so that no so that people wouldn't focus on his incredibly incompetent COVID yeah. response. I agree, and I th- I think that that's a really important nuanced thing to bring up because uh, again, not everything is black and white. Mm-hmm. So the argument is that he the the decision to ban travel from China in and of itself was not purely xenophobic. And in some ways it might've even been scientific. It might've even been helpful. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but he also instituted a similar ban among a lot of European countries, which is where a lot of the, the same, the, the variants were coming from. It's, it's not, so it's not necessarily that he was xenophobic in terms of his policies. Yeah. He was xenophobic in terms of his rhetoric specifically because he was trying to use that rhetoric in order to attract attention from his own failures. And, you know, as Michael said, scapegoat China. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to be fair, coronavirus came from China. Like there's, there's culpability there, uh, potential culpability there, especially like in their response also, but like, yeah, the Chinese government fucked up And yeah, exactly. But, but to, to pretend that that, was the main driver of deaths in the United States. And there's, when those there's really a, fall at there's the a difference between feet. there's a difference between justly calling out the failings of the Chinese government. Yeah. And trying to scapegoat Chinese people in general. Absolutely. And the way that he went about it, it was less about let's talk about the failings of the Chinese government. It was more about let's hate China because of what they did, which his followers translated, a lot of his followers translated as hate Chinese people, mm-hmm. which then became just hate Asian people because most of his followers, like, you know, can't really tell the Aren't difference. Aren't really interested in that difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then that translated into a major increase in hate crimes against, uh, against Asians yeah. in the United States. Yeah. Also, like, I think a huge difference between the travel ban from India and the travel ban bans, I guess, that Trump put in place was that the Biden administration is still trying to help India. Yeah. Like, it's it, like the Biden administration's whole approach to foreign policy is about being a, a better partner on the world stage than we were under the Trump administration. And so the U S is sending like over a hundred million dollars of supplies to India in order to help fight this surge, including oxygen cylinders and 95 masks, uh, rapid tests, um, as well as redirecting the supply of AstraZeneca, like manufacturing supplies to India so that they can uh, make you know, 20 million or so more doses of the COVID vaccine just from the supplies that were, you know, originally intended to go to the U.S. because we have, we're getting enough vaccines and they desperately need them. So like, you know, if you only look at the headline, it's easy to jump to a bunch of conclusions about both administrations. Yeah. But it is about the approach the details of how these things are actually being done, which actually matters. Yeah. Um, now, in both cases, like there's questions about whether travel bans really make a difference, you know, because on the one hand, you know, we're not going to strand U.S. citizens or permanent residents. We're not going to strand them in whatever country they happen to be in when which is exactly bans what Australia did. 
Yeah, which is, and from a public health perspective, from the perspective of limiting spread of disease in your country, it makes no difference if the person is a U.S. citizen or not. Yeah. But obviously, we're not going to like tell people that they can't come in, which yeah. which is the right move, but limits the effectiveness of travel bans because you literally yeah. still have people traveling back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so like, and there's also questions about in both cases. You know, in the case in January 2020 with Trump's ban, in, in this case now, like in January 2020, there were already cases in the U.S. Community spread was already occurring. Now, with the new variant coming from India, some people think it, it may already be here. And, you know, they're probably right. Um, and so, like, there's questions of how effective that would be at limiting the spread of a new, newly introduced variant. But regardless, like... Maybe it's the right policy. Maybe it's not. It really matters how you implement it. Yeah. And also, I think it's important to bring up something I brought up earlier, which is the fact that he did um, waive patents for the mm -hmm. vaccines. Or he, yeah. he, that, that, that he did announce that that was going to be his policy going forward. And one of the things that I was planning on bringing up until he screwed up and did the right thing um, <laughs> was that while those patents were in place, there were a lot of, a lot of countries throughout the world that had less access to vaccines that there were, yeah. they had scientists that were already to create their own generic brands of the vaccine of the, the MRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. And, they were afraid to do it because they were afraid they were going to get going to get sued. Mm -hmm. And now they can start making those. Now they can start distributing them. And hopefully, I mean, that'll help not just India, but the, the rest of the world as well. And yeah. it's, it definitely is something that I am willing to, uh, to sing Biden's praises for. Yeah. And this is an international problem. The more people that get this disease, the more likely it is to, like actually mutate rather than just develop more variants and the mo more likely will be to become a bigger problem than it already is later on, even though we developed a vaccine. So like the, the faster we can fight this, the more thoroughly we can fight this around the world as a global issue, the better. And that's just something that that is a concept that the Trump administration just denied. They thought they like pr pretended like, everything should stop at the border to the US. And literally the only policy that they put in place to stop a global pandemic was to try to in, like enforce the border of the US against a disease. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Michael, our asshat this week is has one of my favorite names to say. It's Rick Santorum. Oh man, that's disgusting! I can't believe you said that on a show. That's ew. <laughs> hey, hey, gross. I, hey, you I strongly say that believe. On a I strongly believe in the importance of spreading Santorum. <laughs> oh God, that's disgusting. <laughs> Google it. Yeah. Google it. <laughs> Google it. But like, but like, go on incognito mode first. <laughs> Because you'll either get spammed with Republican trash or other trash. <laughs> yeah. A, uh, a, a, a very wise forensicator 
during an after-dinner speech once pointed out that Rick Santorum sounds a lot like Dick Taint Scrotum. Man, that is, uh, that's like dispositive evidence and, that he's bad. And that's, <laughs> and that's only the second most offensive thing about his name. <laughs> uh, so true. So what did um, Rick Santorum do to, uh, to get on our show today? So Rick Santorum was uh, speaking to a bunch of uh, college Republicans about how glorious and exceptional America is and American culture. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how wonderful it is that colonizers came to the United States so that they could freely practice their own religion. And they really, they, they created their own culture. So he said, quote, we birthed a nation from nothing. Yes, there were Native Americans, but there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. Mm. You know why the reason yeah. for that is, Dickie Santorum? Um, the reason for that is because uh, we fucking genocided them. Yeah. Yeah, he said, <laughs> he said we came here and created a blank slate. Now, first yeah. of all, you don't create a blank slate. That's not what a blank slate is. You, you have a blank slate and you make something on top of it. So he messed yeah. that up. But actually his version is more true because we wiped the slate clean. Yeah. Via murder. By, by, yeah, via mass genocide. Yeah. And, and also, I, 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 I don't know if this was on purpose. It probably wasn't. But we birthed a nation. Birth of a nation. What's that? That was a uh, that was a famous film made by uh, D. W. Griffith. That was basically um, it was this it was this famous film about how terrible black people are, uh, and how like oh great God. American culture is, and like the the Klan were the good guys that were protecting women from being raped and shit in the movie. It was a it was I, a horrifically I doubt racist, he was terrible intending movie. that. I doubt it. But, but the idea that, of like that in the nomenclature in like the in like yeah. the way of speaking about about making a racially white culturally united states united by judeo christian values which is the big thing the funny thing like of the clip i watched of him talking about this was like that was that shit was like his shit about like pretending like native americans weren't there and then pretending like are killing them so that their culture wasn't part of our culture was fine you know that was the most offensive part the part that like is most actively eerie to me is the fact that he's literally trying to convince this like he's trying to like strengthen this group's belief that he's speaking to that like america is fundamentally a christian nathan nation and we have to like hold on to our christian cultural values and just like like the com the overlap of christianity and whiteness and 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 colonialism and all of these things just thrown into this this mixture oh god it like it really makes me uncomfortable it makes my skin crawl and on top of that the racism <laughs> yeah yeah this i mean rick santorum has always just been like I mean, he's polite Trump. Let's be real. Yeah. Like, he's always been polite Trump. There's a reason why he was punished by the gay community um, 
you know, by uh, who have now immortalized his name. Yeah. Um, and it's because he, like, he's he's always just been hateful and bigoted and ethnocentric. I mean, again, the, the thing is, like, he, he, he tried to walk this back and he tried to be like, oh, well, I misspoke. I don't think he misspoke. I think he, you know, I think that he was truly out of touch enough to where yeah. he actually thought that the best thing that could have happened to this country was that we wiped away all of the heathens and created a nation that was primarily Christian. And I would just like to point out the founders were a bunch of deists. Like, yeah, yeah most exactly. people are Christians, but the founders were a bunch of deists. So the idea that we were founded specifically on Judeo Christian values is just historically bullshit. Yeah. And, and yeah, it absolutely is. Like some of the settlers were escaping religious persecution, but like, then like 170 years passed before yeah. we actually founded a nation, which was mostly based on trade. Yeah. And I would just like to point out like the pilgrims, the Puritans that we all, that we all like have Thanksgiving for, you know why they were driven out of, um, of Britain? They were the because worst. People... <laughs> well, it's, yeah. It's because people got pissed off at them for doing things like burning the globe theater. Did yeah. you know that? Did, did you know that it was the Puritans that burned the Globe Theater? That. Yeah, they burned the Globe Theater, and then everybody was like, "What the fuck, you crazy people!" And then they were all like, "Oh, we're super oppressed. We better go to America. We we we're gonna leave, you know, persecution because th there's all these people that you know don't like the fact that we don't like that we don't like theater or entertainment or you know happiness." And that we impose that on other people, so we're gonna we're gonna go somewhere where we can impose that on other people. And that's to be exactly fair, what they did. Yeah, that's exactly what Rick Santorum <laughs> is arguing for. So, exactly. <laughs> so he's very culturally consistent. So anyway, yeah. congratulations to uh, Ricky Santorum for being our asshat, asshat of, of the, the week. week. So for our third segment. In our Biden-centric episode, we're talking about a recent um, uh, announcement that came out of the FDA, um, which proposes uh, an intention to ban all menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. Yeah, specifically the production and distribution. To be clear, yeah. it doesn't necessarily ban people from possessing it. And yeah. under these rules, people can technically make their own. Like they can still uh, get menthol, um, menthol bottles, and they can they can make their own. Uh, so it only bans the production and distribution of it. Does that not fall under the production? Oh, so you can make it for yourself. No, you can make it for yourself, yeah. But you couldn't make it and then sell it. I guess exactly. you couldn't do that with any tobacco because that's exactly. a controlled substance. Exactly. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. So yeah. So last week the FDA came out. The uh, the current uh, commissioner Janet Woodcock um, released a statement, and I mean they have some pretty good reasons for trying to yeah. ban menthol cigarettes. And we want to yeah. steel man this argument. We want to like you know do it justice. So they the so um, she said quote banning menthol the last allowable flavor 
in cigarettes and banning all flavors in cigars will help save lives, particularly among those disproportionately affected by these deadly products. With these actions, the FDA will help significantly reduce youth initiation and increase the chances of smoking cessation among current smokers and address health disparities experienced by communities of color, low-income populations, and LGBTQ plus individuals, all of whom are far more likely to use these tobacco products. Yeah. And I would just like to read some statistics on that. So more than half of youth-aged people, uh, this uh, this is according to the CDC, so youth-aged people meaning uh, between the ages of 12 and 17 who smoke, so 54% of people, um, use menthol cigarettes. Mm. So like more than half of the minors who smoke use menthol. And that's because menthol as a product makes tobacco more palatable. It makes yeah. it less harsh, easier to smoke, which is like it's designed to be a smoking product for non-smokers. So it's about yeah. initiation. Yeah, exactly. And a majority of African-Americans who smoke use menthol. In fact, seven out of 10 African-American youth wow. who smoke use menthol cigarettes. Seven out of 10, 70%. Wow. That is completely insane. And furthermore, and I think that this one is really important, if we are steel manning the argument, if we are using arguments in favor of this ban, um, 93% of black adults who smoke started by using menthol cigarettes. Wow. 93%. Jeez. That is crazy. And the thing is, menthol cigarettes are very appealing as a place to start because again, to what Michael said, they're less harsh. Um, some of the, some of the ways in which a regular, uh, regular cigarettes might, um, dissuade you from smoking further because of how like rough and disgusting tobacco tastes yeah. is heavily alleviated. And in some ways, almost like it almost acts like a numbing agent. Yeah. Um, and it ends up making the experience a lot more pleasant, which if mm -hmm. the experience is more pleasant, it trains your brain to, you know, to view it in a more positive light, which makes you significantly more likely to get addicted to it. Yeah. Yeah. And one study from the FDA uh, found that banning menthol, menthol cigarettes in the U.S. would lead an additional 923,000 smokers to quit, including 230,000 um, African-Americans uh, to quit within the first 13 to 17 months after the ban goes into effect. So they have, they have, they have, you know, if you were thinking about the components or the elements of this argument, menthol cigarettes disproportionately affect, like disproportionately encourage youth to smoke, disproportionately affect vulnerable populations. And there's good reason to believe that, um, banning these cigarettes would lead more people to quit smoking and fewer people to start smoking. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, vulnerable populations in the U S like die younger. And part of the reason, and, and part of the reason is because of things like this. So average U S life, life expectancy in 2020 was 77.8 years, but for black people, it was 72 years. Yeah. 7% shorter life for African-Americans in this country. And one of the reasons is things like health conditions 
related to smoking. Yeah. And tobacco companies very heavily target African-American communities. Mm -hmm. And also tobacco, the tobacco industry has a vested interest in targeting youth because the issue is their customers are going to die sooner. Yeah. Like most of their customers are going to die sooner because I'm, you know, because smoking kills you like smoking causes cancer. So what's nice about getting young people hooked on it and trying to subtly target your advertising, especially when we're talking about menthol cigarettes to minors is that if you get someone hooked on smoking when they're 15, they're a customer for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's very beneficial to the tobacco industry. Mm -hmm. So on top of that, you know, to, to people that would make the argument um, that this is this is a ban or that this is going to make it so people don't have access to the products that they that they want to have. I think it's important to note just how easy it is to make your own menthol cigarette. Yeah. Basically, all you need to do is you need to get um, some menthol uh, flavor concentrate and a uh, a five milliliter bottle runs at like two bucks. Hmm. Like you can order one online for two bucks and then you pretty much just spray that on a regular cigarette or a cigarette that you, that you bought, or maybe one that you rolled yourself. Um, and if you want to, if you want to, uh, get the exact flavor that you want, you might experiment with like, you know, you, you spray a little bit, then you smoke. And if you don't like the flavor yet, spray, spray a little bit more (laughs) smoke. Like there might be some trial and error, but you can basically like, table it to your own palate. So in some ways it doesn't necessarily make it so that people can't do this if they want to. I think the episode title should be how to make a menthol. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, I'm not (laughs) that was not my intention. You get a you get a five milliliter bottle of menthol. But but, but the important thing is like (laughs) And narrow in on your quality control via experimentation and testing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. I would just like to point out I did not know a damn thing about how to create a menthol cigarette until literally twenty minutes before we started recording. What I just Mm -hmm. explained to you, I found that on Google in like two seconds. Yeah. So, you know, I I would say that if someone is really interested enough to to try to learn how to um, to make menthol cigarettes, I'm I'm probably not going to be their primary source. (laughs) (laughs) At least I hope that I'm not. (laughs) Um, and And I would also like to point out, I personally hate cigarettes. Mm hmm. Like I have, I have occasionally smoked a pipe. I have occasionally smoked cigars. Um, you know, I, I like them well enough. I haven't smoked a cigar in like five years though. Uh, and I only, and I've only smoked like maybe, I don't know, 10 cigars in my entire lifetime. Yeah. But like when it comes to cigarettes, I hate cigarettes. I don't think anybody should smoke cigarettes. I think that the world would be a better place if everyone tomorrow just decided I'm never going to smoke a cigarette again. If everyone Mm -hmm. just collectively decided they were never going to smoke a cigarette again and the tobacco industry naturally died, I think the world would be a much, much better place. 
all of that being said, <laughs> literally the first 10 minutes of this segment being said, <laughs> I think this band's bullshit. Mm-hmm. I think that I, I'm not okay with this band for a few reasons. The first reason I would say is just on principle. I don't like when the government decides we're going to limit something that you are doing in order to protect you from yourself. Yeah. The point of the government when it comes to when it comes to interfering with your personal life is to protect you from others, not you from yourself. If you want to make the choice to smoke a cigarette, that's your choice. Mm-hmm. I think it's a bad choice. A lot of people think it's a bad choice. But it's your choice. And we live in a free society. We don't live in an authoritarian society. We live in a free society. And if you decide that you want to use a product, knowing full well the dangers of it. Which everybody does. Which everybody does. That's your choice. Yeah. And is and, and we can do all we can to educate people. We can do all we can to try to persuade people. Hey. Don't do that. Like, it's a bad idea to do that. You can even have families that try to pressure their family members into quit into quitting smoking. We can have government-funded initiatives in order to help people stop smoking. I, I, I'm completely fine with that. But I'm not okay with blanket bans from a purely live-and-let-live perspective, from a civil libertarian perspective, I'm not okay with it. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes it is hard to stick to that idea. You know, sometimes it feels weird to stick yeah. to the idea that the government's role is to protect uh, us from each other, not yeah. from ourselves. Especially because, like, that line is not one that is currently fully, like, respected in our laws. Like, it's not something that... If you just if yeah. you outline the laws in the world as it is right now, they don't fall on they fall on both sides of that line. But I think I think ultimately you're right about that. Like we should we we can and should limit certain things. Like yeah. it's great that tobacco companies can't advertise on TV. Yeah. That's a good thing. You know. Yeah. Like I would be fine if they couldn't advertise at all. I'm yeah. totally fine with that. We Same should take here. every tool away from their ability yeah. to convince people to use their products. Yeah. I am totally fine with uh with underage people not being allowed to buy tobacco products. Yeah. I'm totally fine with that. Like children operate um at a uh a I shouldn't say deficient but not adult level of of foresight and mental capacity like they just aren't adults in their brains and so like they youth deserve to be protected and so we should you know it's totally fine to prevent them from in like unduly endangering themselves out of lack of foresight out of immaturity and so preventing them from buying it and making that those you know um restrictions as effective as possible i think makes total sense yeah but i do agree that like Ultimately, I don't want 
a world where I, like as an individual, can't take a, a calculated, even if unconsidered, risk about doing something that I enjoy. Even if it seems like, like even if like there's no, even if other people don't get it. Yeah. And look, if we if we consider the role of the government as being primarily to protect people from themselves and they should be able to restrict freedom in order to do that, then what precedent does that send? I mean, there are people that honestly think that video games are a public health crisis, that mm -hmm. video games contribute to, to mass shootings, that video games contribute to, um, to, to, to violent inclinations, which the research just does not back that up. And like, look, look, this isn't a slippery slope uh, fallacy. This is this has actually been proposed. Like Donald Trump even tried to talk about how we need to start limiting video games because, of course, he didn't want to talk about guns. He, you know, he was trying to find any possible scapegoat to avoid talking about uh, guns with rela their relation to mass shootings. But he, he, the Republic people in the Republican Party and Donald Trump have talked about that in the past. They have talked about how we should restrict video games. Mm-hmm in order to, to protect people from themselves. Like, I don't think I'm crazy to bring that up as a potential concern when we're talking about establishing a precedent that it's okay for the government to be overbearing, to, to, to ban things with, under the guise of let's protect people from themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and ultimately, like, a slippery slope argument here, I think is not as as with all arguments about a slippery slope it's not inevitable yeah ultimately but ultimately like i think this is a principle worth respecting yeah and certainly in the case of something like cigarettes a recreational activity which people choose to engage in sometimes or not like i think like a blanket ban doesn't make a lot of sense yeah also on top of that and this was a point that I that uh, I think Al Sharpton made. Banning a product, uh, specifically limiting the access to a product primarily used and enjoyed by the African American community, sounds pretty discriminatory to me. Yeah, like like, do we really want to go out and limit the the civil liberties, the individual autonomy of african-american communities yeah i get the public health claim but but the the path to solving the that crisis is not restricting the autonomy and liberty of african-americans yeah and you know i i made this point and i actually i actually got into a pretty long argument with a good friend of ours uh when i made this point um, and, you know, before I say this, I'd just like to go ahead and point out if I end up being wrong about this, I am perfectly, I, I will actually be very happy if I'm wrong about this, uh, but yeah. I'll be perfectly willing to come back on the pod and say, Hey, I was wrong. This didn't happen. Um, this to me feels like a continuation of the war on drugs. Hmm. Um, now the war on drugs has cost money and lives and um and destroyed lives destroyed communities 
So I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like I am diminishing any of that, but it is true that the war on drugs has changed over time and it has been dying down as people have been giving more, given more freedom to basically do what they want as more States have been legalizing marijuana or decriminalizing marijuana. So when I compare this to the war on drugs, I'm not saying that this is the same thing as, as Nixon uh, commanding federal agents to go in and uh, arrest um, black people for political reasons and you know use as an excuse the fact that they, they might have been doing drugs. What I'm saying is that this is a step back in the direction of the war on drugs when what we should be doing is getting away from it. Mm. And here's my concern. And, and Michael kind of started echoing this and... Um, and this same concern has been echoed by the ACLU. So the ACLU actually released a statement in which they said, quote, time and time again, we see encounters with police over minor offenses. For Dante Wright, it was expired tags. For George Floyd, it was using a counterfeit bill. For Eric Garner, it was selling loose cigarettes. Result in a killing. There are serious concerns that the ban implemented by the Biden administration will eventually foster an underground market that is sure to trigger criminal penalties, which will disproportionately impact people of color and prioritize criminalization over public health and harm reduction. And I'd say the biggest evidence for that is pretty much all of American history. Mm -hmm. I mean, and as I explained, and as, as I explained earlier, it's fairly easy to make your own menthol, which, mm-hmm. you know, you might hear that and think, well, that's an argument that there doesn't need to be a black market for it. But it's also an argument that a black market for it would actually be pretty cost effective. You wouldn't have to jack up the prices all that much because it's fairly easy for you to make them. It's fairly easy for you to get um, so to get menthol concentrate, spray them on some cigarettes and then sell them on the street. And And here's the thing. You know how, like, when, when, you go to, when you go to get a burger, right, you could very easily make your own burger, right? You could very easily cook your own hamburger for, like, you know, and it could probably, that, that one hamburger probably cost you, like, like, $1, you know, if you cook your own burger. And yet, people still go to restaurants and buy, like, a $10 burger every single day. And part of that is because people trust other people like, like people trust um people trust a person who is experienced in creating a certain in creating a certain product and creating a product consistently more than they trust themselves so you can very easily roll your own cigarettes it's very easy to do that you just need to buy loose tobacco and get some paper and you could very easily do that and you would save a lot of money, but yet people still go to stores and buy cigarettes. Yeah. So what this means is that it would be, there would very likely be a demand for menthol cigarettes that were already made. Furthermore, it would be incredibly cost effective for a black market to potentially make their own menthols. Like I said, a five milliliter bottle of menthol concentrate, which could, you know, which could flavor like a ton of cigarettes is only $2. Yeah. 
and 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 again, this ban is on the distribution. So I don't think it is unreasonable to say that this very well could result in another excuse for police officers to harass black people for minor offenses. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like, banning the things that people want, especially the things that people are addicted to, has every single time given rise to a black market. Like, every time. Yeah. Now, the argument is that they're all, there are going to be legal alternatives in order to satisfy that addiction. You know, you can buy non-menthol cigarettes from the... Um, from the, you know, from the local, like, gas, yeah, station, gas station or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. Um, but people, but people have like menthols. They like. Yeah, people like menthols. That's why they want to ban them. People like exactly. them too much. They make smoking too pleasant. Yeah. And look, it's objectively, that's a bad thing. But it's still people's choice. And so... Look, 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 if, if I do happen to be, if I am wrong that a black market will be created, I will very, I will be very happy. I will very happily come on this pod and say, I was wrong. I was, you know, I, I, I made a prediction. It was completely false. Um, you know, I retract it, but I'm still going to be against the ban because it, it should not be the purview of the government to protect people from themselves. So if you want to make a stupid fucking decision and smoke a cigarette. You should be allowed to do that. So now to close out our episode, we'll finish on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? So my highlight this week is the fact that right before we recorded for the pod, I got to go meet, this dog that Jess and I might be adopting. Uh, there's still oh. some things up in the air, um, but we recently did make the decision that we are, we want to get a dog. We want to get another dog. We have, we have Blake, my service dog. We will, we want to get a pet and we met one today um, who might end up being it. And she was so cute and so excitable and I'm I'm very I'm just I'm just so so excited and so happy about that. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. What about you, Michael? What was your highlight? My highlight, I think, was that today, so I've been working on this like one project a lot for the past like month. And then today we finally had like our last meeting on it. It went really, really well. And so it like not only is gratifying that it went well, but it's also just weight off my shoulders and feels great to be done with it so uh yeah that's my highlight nice and with that thank you so much for listening to the perspectrum and you'll hear from us again next week <laughs> <laughs>